0: Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. Among the stories that I am I am fascinated by today, the reports out of the January 6th committee. Let me just read you the, the Politico report. As Trump's team pushed its discredited voter fraud narrative, the National Archives received forged certificates of ascertainment declaring him the winner of both Michigan and Arizona and their electors. After the 2020 election, so they actually forged these certificates and they put it in writing and it is in the custody of the National Archives. This probably suggests why President Trump and others are you know, resisting having their, their records uh, turned over. But I, I'm, I'm sorry to repeat myself, but this is not normal people. This is not the normal kind of story that you read. And this is not the normal process. Well, welcome to uh, the Bulwark podcast. I know a lot of you had said, hey, Charlie, could you give us something a little bit lighter a little bit more upbeat? Um, And I've heard you, but instead we decided to do this (laughs) today. And we are joined by Barbara Walter, professor of political science at the University of California, San Diego. Uh, As you probably might have known, if if you've been paying attention, she studies civil conflict, political violence and terrorism. And her new book is How Civil Wars Start. And how to stop them? Okay, so Barbara, thanks for joining me. My pleasure. If we can't be cheerful, we can at least be very interesting today. <laughs> okay,
1: so. that's the goal. Yes.
0: Okay, so I guess the the main question is: you study civil wars, how they start, how to end them, and I guess the question is: is America right now closer to civil war than most uh, most folks might think?
1: Uh, yes, it is. I wish I I didn't have to say that, but uh, it's true, and I'll tell you why we know that. Um, So there's people like me who study civil wars. I've been studying civil wars for 30 years uh, and I focused almost exclusively outside the United States. So so there's been over 200 civil wars since um, the end of World War II. I've studied every single one of them. And I'm not just interested in the details of, of a single one like Afghanistan or Syria. I'm really interested in the patterns that we see across all of these countries. And one of the things that we now know is that the same factors tend to emerge um, before civil wars no matter where they break out. So then so you, oh, go you, ahead.
0: Yeah, I'm sorry. So you wrote about this. I mean, you know, so you you have studied you know places like Syria, <laughs> Lebanon and Northern Ireland and we do, we don't yeah. think of our political world as being like that, but you, you know, you see signs that most people miss and you yeah. wrote and I can see those signs emerging here yeah. at a surprisingly fast rate. What are you seeing?
1: Well, I'll tell you why I wrote the book. Um, Starting in 2017, from 2017 to 2021, I was on a task force that's uh, run by the U.S. government. It's called the Political Instability Task Force. And our job um, on that task force was to um, come up with a predictive model um, that helped the U.S. government predict where around the world uh, countries were likely to experience political instability and political violence. And the U.S. government was interested in this because they wanted to know if important countries, our allies or or countries that were strategically important, were about to get into trouble so that they could potentially do something about it. Um, And so we sat around, and it's really a bunch of eggheads and data analysts like myself, and we sat around and we thought about what are all the possible factors that could put a country at risk of civil war. And we thought of some common ones or, or commonsensical ones like poverty or how ethnically diverse a country was or whether there was deep Income inequality. Um, We actually thought of over 50 different variables that might matter, and we put them into a model. And it turns out, to our great surprise, that only two came out highly predictive. The first was what we call anocracy, and that's a fancy term for partial democracy. It's countries whose governments are neither fully democratic nor fully autocratic. You could think of them as partial democracies. Um, failing democracies, Fried Zakaria calls them illiberal democracies. So that's the most important factors. And, and
0: the word is an anocracy. anocracy. Admit that's, a new, that's a new one for me. Okay. It's anocracy. A
1: new, right. Most people think that governments are either democratic or autocratic, but there's really this continuum. And it's the the, the governments that are in the middle that are the most unstable and the most violence prone. Um, the second factor is, um, whether a country's, um, uh, population begins to organize itself politically, not around ideology, but around identity, whether it's Mm. ethnic identity, religious identity, or racial identity. And if you put partial democracy together with, with this sort of ethnic factionalizing, Those are the countries that are most at risk of civil war. Now, of course, I'm on this task force. We are not allowed to look at the United States. We never talk about the United States. We're talking about Syria and we're talking about, uh, you know, countries in Africa and Central Asia. And I'm sitting there and I'm looking what's happening in my own country and and. I couldn't believe that these two factors were emerging here. And as you said earlier, they're, they emerged at, at a surprisingly fast rate.
0: No, I mean, so, so let's keep going through this, this checklist because, you know, some of the things you mentioned before, like poverty and ethnic yeah. diversity and income inequality, those are not necessarily worse. But you're talking about people splitting along these identity lines, which would be what racial, religious, geographical yeah. lines. Uh, also, isn't when when dominant groups feel that they're losing their power they're losing yes. their privileged status that that's one of the factors and, and the loss of faith in the political system yes. are, are, give me some others things like that that that, that really stand out
1: well anocracy and this identity politics, racial politics are the most important. And then when you think about, okay, what are the triggers? Those are underlying conditions, right? A country can be an an, anocracy for 30 years. Its politics could be defined along racial lines for decades. Those don't change very much. And so people often ask me, they're like, okay, then how do you explain the timing of civil wars? What triggers civil wars? And we actually have a, a sense of what what does. And, and in my book, I have a chapter called when hope dies. And it Mm. really is when the group in society that's, that's disaffected. And I'll talk in a second about who those groups tend to be the aggrieved groups, the angry groups, the groups that, that want change in the political system. Um, They tend to work within the system as long as they can. And that makes sense. Most people don't want war. Um, Most people want to avoid war at all costs. And so they'll do everything possible to try to affect change by working through conventional politics. But when that no longer works and when it becomes clear to them that that no longer works, that's when the more extreme elements of that group start to say, listen, listen, We have to shift to violence because if we don't, we'll never reach our goal. And there's two observable indicators that they often use to figure out that the system will never work for them again. And and one is is a series of failed elections, right? Mm. If your group... Continues to lose elections um, in a democracy with one person, one vote. What that's really telling you is you don't have the votes to win, and and that democracy is no longer serving you. And 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 if you think about the 2020 elections, I think the 2020 elections were devastating to Republicans. Um, they had historically high turnout. Um, they. Ha- they had enormous turnout in the in that election, and they still lost by almost 8 million votes. And so what that's telling them is even if they have a great ground game, even if they convince you know, a, a high percentage of Republicans to go to the polls, they still don't have the numbers to win. And the second factor is if, when— if, if,
0: in fact, they believe the numbers, right? I mean, there, there is, they, there's well, a huge number that appear to be in denial about that.
1: Well, and again, I think you have to think about the players here as there's really two players involved. There's the elites within the Republican Party, and then there's just average Republican voters. And and they truly believe that the election was stolen. They, it, it, they're they not making this up. They truly believe it. The, the people who yeah. stormed the Capitol on January 6th, they truly believe that they were being patriotic and they were saving this country and they were doing their duty. It's the elites that are feeding them lies. And the, the elites are feeding them lies that the election was stolen because that's the only means they can hold on to power at this mm-hmm. point. And so they have to convince, they have to convince their, uh, the members of their party, average, average Joes, um, that democracy, our democracy is broken. They, they can't say, well, you know, let's go to authoritarianism because because we we don't have enough votes. No, they're going to say that that our democracy is broken, that um, that it's 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 bad, that we have to do something else. And and so I actually don't blame the average Joe's because mm-hmm. that's what they're being told. I blame the elites, and of course, historically we yeah. have a name for you know these people. We call them ethnic entrepreneurs. Um, And I'll give you a perfect example of an ethnic entrepreneur, Slobodan Milosevic. You probably remember him. Um, When when the Soviet Union collapsed and Yugoslavia became independent, suddenly um, all the, the politicians in the former Yugoslavia, suddenly they had to face competitive elections for the first time ever. Milosevic was a tried-and-true communist. He had been a member of the Communist Party. He had power because he was a communist. He was a good little foot soldier for the Communist Party. Suddenly, he's cut loose, and he has to face competitive elections, and he knows— that communists are not popular in the newly independent Yugoslavia. Nobody is going to vote for him because they know of his communist past. So he has to figure out a way to convince uh, voters to vote for him and not somebody else. And suddenly there's there's a crowded competitive marketplace for, for politicians. And he's very smart. And he looks around Yugoslavia and he said, ethnically, which is the biggest... Um, group uh, in this country, and it was Serbs. Serbs had a plurality of people in, in the former Yugoslavia, and he was ethnically Serb. So he went out there and he began to foment lies. He began to tell Serbs that they needed to band together because if they didn't band together behind a Serb, a strong Serb leader like Milosevic, then the Croats were going to do that before them. And when the, if the Croats got power, they were going to turn on the Serbs and they were potentially going to kill them the way they did in World War II. And so he created this narrative filled with lies that created this sense of fear and threat and insecurity Mm -hmm. among the Serbs. And lo and behold, they banded together behind him and he became president. Um, And so when I think about the Republican Party here, you you see a similar dynamic and you see a similar dynamic in Brazil and in India with Modi and in the Philippines with Duterte. Um, It's it's ethnic entrepreneurs, um, Creating this sense of fear and threat to get average people behind them.
0: So let's let's look at the United States. Now, according to what you've written, the United States has, and these are your words, already gone through what the CIA I- identifies as the first two phases of, of insurgency, <laughs> the pre-insurgency and incipient conflict. And when The Washington Post wrote this update, point out, you know, time will tell whether the final phase open insurgency began with the sacking of the Capitol by Trump supporters on January 6th. So this is we we've gone through what what were the pre insurgency and the incipient (laughs) conflicts? I mean, obviously, January 6th didn't come out of anything, but, um, you know, that's the pattern that you're you're identifying.
1: Yeah. So let me give you a little background on this because it's fascinating. So the CIA has a manual uh, called Guide to Insurgency, and it's available online. It's in the public realm. If you Google it, you'll find it. The last iteration was, I think, the 2012 edition. Hmm. And you can pull it up on your computer and you can read it. Now, again, the CIA is not allowed to look at the United States. When they put together this manual, they weren't ever thinking about the United States. They were thinking about places like the Philippines they were thinking about places like Afghanistan and they're trying to figure out like how do we how do we identify the early warning signs so that we can actually do something huh. to halt the insurgency be, before it gets into the open insurgency phase so for for your listeners if they pull this up and they read it what is shocking about it is is how similar the patterns are here in the United States. You cannot read that insurgency manual without thinking about the last few years here in the United States. And the guy who probably is you know is the most about this is a guy called David Kilcullen. He's mm-hmm. an Australian counterinsurgency expert. He's written a lot about um, where the U.S. is on this on the CIA's insurgency uh, scale. Um, and he also was an advisor to Petraeus. He's he's advised um, the U.S. government of various things. And and he has said we're at that second of three stages um, when. January 6th happened last year. He said, you know, this could be the start of the open insurgency stage. Um, and the open insurgency stage is where you now have a consistent series of attacks. Um, so the capital could have been the first one, but then you would have, let's say, a bombing of, of a state, a capital somewhere else. You, you could have had a series of targeted assassinations against opposition leaders. You could have had some more mass killings, for example, in, in synagogues or, or um, black churches. But it would be a consistent series of attacks and. I Obviously, that has not happened yet. And so um, Kilcullen has said, you know, we're still at that second stage, which is called the incipient
0: conflict stage. So you use the word civil war, but you you also write about the troubles in Northern Ireland, which lasted about 30 years. Is it more likely that we're going to see something like the troubles than, you know, sectional blue versus gray battlefield civil war? I mean, when you use the term civil war. What 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 manifestation yeah. is? Is it like yeah. that? More like the troubles, the the, the sporadic violence uh, that you yeah. described just now,
1: Charlie. I'm really glad you brought this mm. up because oftentimes when I talk to people, and even um, some of the reaction I've gotten to the, the probably the the biggest. Potential criticism that I've seen out there on the internet about the book is, oh, we're never going to have another civil war. You, do you really think we're going to have these two big armies meeting on the battlefield? And the answer is no, we're not. That's not what it's going to look like at all. That's a 19th century version of civil war. The 21st century type of civil war that we're seeing is very, very different from that. It's going to be decentralized, it's going to be fought by multiple different factions, militias, paramilitary. Military groups. Sometimes they'll work together. Sometimes they'll compete with each other. They're going to be relying on unconventional tactics like terrorism. Terrorism will be a big part of it. Um, some go- guerrilla warfare. Um, they will be targeting civilians, unlike you know what you saw um, in in the American Civil War. And the way for Amer- maybe Americans to think about it, and, and most people don't know this in 1860, the U.S. military was actually quite weak. It had about 16,000 soldiers under arms, 16,000. And most of them were stationed west of the Mississippi to to control the Native American population. And so if you're the Confederacy, um, the Confederate States, and they already for decades had their own militias, which they could quickly bring together to form the Confederate Army. If you're the Confederate States, it wasn't crazy to think Hmm. that you could Hmm. defeat the American military in 1860. It is crazy to think you could defeat the American military today, which has over 2 million soldiers under arms who can be transported quite quickly around the country. And so they have to utilize a different strategy. And the strategy that you, I think you would see here is a strategy that you see, um, across many civil wars today, which is this form of leaderless resistance, very decentralized, almost like cell, um, uh, cell warfare, so it's very hard to to identify. So basically, very domestic hard. terrorism. Domestic terrorism. Yeah, exactly.
0: Oh. So, because the, the question I always have when when I hear discussions like this is, okay, who is shooting who, and how does it start? Now, huh. I mean, your whole book is about how does civil war start, but how does the shooting start? Who shoots who? <laughs> Um, I know we don't know, but I'm just, what's the, what's the pattern? How does it go from incipient to actually hot shooting bullets? I
1: mean, the, the key becomes to create a moment of deep uncertainty. So do you remember on nine 11, when you woke up you probably turned on your television. Well, here I was on the West coast. So I, I, it was already happening early in the morning. You turn on your television, you suddenly see that something terrible is happening. You don't like, you don't know if there are going to be more attacks. You know that they're shutting down the, the airports, you know, that there's still planes flying. You don't go to work because you, 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 you feel like you have to stay home to try to figure out what's going on, everything suddenly gets suspended. And that's what the instigators of violence are hoping to achieve. And once people are in a a sense of deep uncertainty, deep insecurity, and a sense of fear, they're looking to see um, if the government is, you know, is the, can the is the government out there? Or is the government doing something to protect us to fix this? And if they start to sense that the government isn't in control, or they, they aren't sure who is in control, and then let's say suddenly they see armed individuals in their neighborhood, in their city, or on TV, they start seeing areas that are that appear to be controlled by somebody besides the government. Um, they it, it it creates this scenario where people start to decide, well, who who am I gonna support? Yeah. Who's going to protect me? And when I talk to people who who lived through civil wars, there was this couple who lived through Sarajevo. Well, everybody I talked to who lived through civil wars said the same thing. We didn't see it coming. Hmm. To this day, when we look back, we still can't believe it happened. And yet, people like me who study this we we know the warning signs it's just that average citizens don't know the warning signs and so they go about their daily business this couple in sarajevo they were having baby showers and they were going to their friends houses on the weekend and they were going to their jobs every day and and they they heard certain things were happening but they didn't want to believe it. And then they were busy. And so they were distracted. And then you have people like Milosevic who are telling, or, or their own leaders who are telling them something different. And so they, they don't want to know, they don't want to see, and they just hope it will go away. And so this couple said, you know, it, we were just going about our everyday life. And then one night the lights went off (laughs) and we heard machine gun fire in the hills and then of course it goes very rapidly you know maybe the next day you you go to the grocery store and there's a roadblock you know four streets away and you're like who's who's manning that roadblock and you don't really know and then suddenly there's a, a sniper on the building so that you're scared to go out of your house and so that's how you tend to see it happening at the local level.
0: So I, I don't want to be morbid, but I keep coming back to this this flashpoint, and and I've I've thought about what happened on January sixth, and particularly one moment when one of the uh, uh, Washington police officers, Officer Fenone, was down, and uh, you know some of the protesters, yeah. rioters, were saying, you know, take his gun and kill him, and he was actually thinking, you know, what if I took my gun. What if I, I if I shot, yeah. what, what if any yeah. of those officers would have fired their weapons, how much worse this could have been. And, and so how the, what is the spark? Um, <laughs> do you have po- police federal agents who are serving a warrant who are fired upon? We've seen that before. Um, yeah. you know, fe- federal agents who are trying to seize an illegal cache of weapons that they think might be used for yeah. domestic terrorism that leads to a, a, a fire fight. Um, uh, you know, in 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 many ways, it's remarkable that there was, given the you know open carry in so many states, that there yes. haven't been flashpoints in places like the capital of Michigan yes. uh, or down in in Texas. But it feels like it's almost inevitable. And then the question is. Is that a moment of, you know, sobriety where everyone steps back, or does it become a cycle? And in in, the, in some of the things you're describing, the first shot leads to the second shots. It inspires more violence, more fear, more paranoia, and it just sort of you know uh, goes out, gets out of control. Is is that? Is that a realistic fear?
1: So this is a really good point. Absolutely. And again, what we know of from the the really extensive scholarship on how nonviolent protests Uh, turn into violent protests, how, um, you know, fringe extremist groups suddenly become um, more popular and gain um, significant followers. A lot of it has to do with how the government responds to early, well, let's call them protests, but it could be, you know, early, early attacks. Think of the January 6th participants as extremists within the, the far right. Um, Clearly, they're willing to take measures that that most conservatives, most Republicans in the country would not have been willing to take at the time. Their challenge is how do they convince more moderate Republicans to to back their cause, to to come to agree that these more assertive and even violent methods are justified. And we know from our studies uh, on protests and on terrorism that the best way to do that is to provoke a disproportionate response from the powers that be, from the government. Right, so that if the government had responded to the January six attackers by mowing some of them down, first of all, they, it would have been ready martyrs for the cause, which which that movement would have gladly used. But it would have been in some um, ways uh, considered hard evidence to people who might be sympathetic to that cause but weren't willing to go as far as using violence it would be hard evidence to them that perhaps what what the extremists in in their party were saying was true that the government was inherently against them that the government was illegitimate and doesn't deserve um, to be their leaders. And so so how the government responds is very important. And it could, if it responds too harshly, it could have the effect of radicalizing even more people to the cause.
0: Well let's talk about some of the blowback you've gotten. Um, the economists thought that some of your <laughs> assessments were far-fetched. I think the Times of London said they were overblown. And yeah. uh, Michelle Goldberg of the New York Times said she's not yet convinced that we are an anocracy and thinks that you underplay the difference between countries moving away from authoritarianism toward democracy and those going the other way. And she also argued that the U.S. becoming more like Hungary seems more likely than civil war because Republicans work to maintain power, whether voters want it or not. So your just your reaction to that, because you've gotten some pushback saying, come on, we're not, we the United States. We're not going to actually start shooting each other.
1: Yeah. So there's really two points there. The, the first is you know, the for example, the economist said we're not going to have another civil war. And what the author of that what really meant was we're not going to have another 1860 Civil War. This is just not going to happen here, and I completely agree with that. Um, I don't think that reviewer actually read the book because I spend a lot of time talking about this new type of Civil War that we're seeing. That's really more of an insurrection, um, and that we absolutely will not see um, a, a second Civil War like the old style. And in fact, I, I argue that it's it's actually quite dangerous to to think that because if that's what we're looking for, we're gonna be unprepared for what really is going to happen. Um, and then the Michelle Goldberg piece is was really smart. And, you know, she argued that the U.S. isn't really quite an democracy yet and that, um, you know, we we don't r- really know um, if these declines in democracy are going to le- lead to war. And I guess my response to that is I, I don't code the data. I don't, you know, I didn't suddenly decide that the United States was an inocracy. the The data that we use on the task force comes from a, a nonprofit organization called the Center of Systemic Peace. They've been collecting data for, for decades. Um, and, um, in on, in some respects, it doesn't really matter how they how they code anocracy. All we know is is that the way they code it, you know, those are the countries, mm-hmm. those are the countries that tend to experience civil war. And and it was the center of systemic peace that um, downgraded the United States to anocracy. Um, and I guess there's one other point um, that I think is important. And 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 Goldberg wasn't able to be this nuanced in her in her article, um, but but I am in the book. So the scale from full autocracy to full democracy goes from negative 10 to positive 10. It's a 20 point scale. The anocracy zone is from negative five to positive five. Where where civil war is most likely is between negative one and positive one. The United States, when it was downgraded to an inocracy the first time in January of last year, was downgraded to plus five. So it's not yet in the super sweet spot of high risk of civil war um, within this inocracy zone. That would take it being downgraded further to a plus one, a zero or a negative one. Um, But it is for the first time in the zone. And so what that tells us is if the United States continues to decline, if the United States doesn't strengthen its democracy, if the Republican Party is successful in undercutting um, more of the checks and balances on the executive, for example, um, then we are going to, our risk of civil war is going to increase even further.
0: So let's talk about your um, your thoughts about uh, January 6th. Uh, you gave an interview to a, a journalist from the Sunday Times of London and you told her that you thought, um, I'll summarize this, that the January 6th was really kind of a wake up call because yeah. it could expose Trump and his supporters, their yeah. true colors. And, and I think you described it as the gift that America needed to wake up because those of us who were sounding the alarm, had been getting yeah. nowhere with it which i think a lot of us thought at the time so a year later clearly a lot of americans hit the snooze button
1: yes um so we, you mean we didn't uh, wake up <laughs> uh since january 6th yeah. yeah so um i do think something so joe biden was elected um uh in, in november of of 2020 and i do think that the left here in america Breathed a a collective sigh of relief that they thought, oh, you know, now now we're safe. Everything is going to be okay. You know, Uncle Joe is in in the White House. And again, for those of us who study civil wars, we don't really care who's in the White House. Um, What we care about is how strong is our democracy. Full liberal democracies, those that that get a plus 10, do not experience civil wars. Mm. So all people like me care about is, since Biden was in office, has our democracy gotten stronger? Have, are we now moving up the democracy scale? Um, and the answer is no. We are, <laughs> we are still at a plus five. Um, there have been no... Uh, reforms to our democracy, whether in terms of voting rights, whether in terms of eliminating the filibuster, whether in terms of, <clears throat> I mean, you name it, whether in terms of more checks and balances on the president. Um, and so from my perspective, um, the, the risk continues. And actually, the way I think about it is, is the way I think about something like the risk of smoking, we know from the task force that countries that have these two factors, anocracy and, and ethnic factions, um, are at about a 4% annual risk of civil war. That seems small, but it's not. If those two conditions do not change and they continue for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, after 30 years, the risk of civil war in the United States with those two conditions unchanged would probably be above 100%. So I could start smoking today and my risk of dying of lung cancer this year would be really, really Mm -hmm. small. But if I continued to smoke for the rest of my life, the risk would increase and eventually it would be quite high.
0: So th- this interview that you gave with Sarah Baxter in the Sunday Times um, was was disturbing on a number of different levels, including, you know, Baxter, uh, who uh, has both American and British citizenship, um, shares the story that her neighbors in Pennsylvania predict um, civil war in kind of a matter of fact way with kind of a gleam in their eye. Yes. And you, you've noticed this, too, that, that it does seem like there are some Americans that are excited by the idea of civil war, you know, people who think we need some culling. I mean, you're picking this up that, no. that that suddenly something that was unthinkable is now becoming thinkable and yes. is now become desirable for some Americans.
1: Yes, I think that's true. You know, Charlie, you'd probably sh- it would probably be better to talk to uh, uh, somebody with a uh, a degree in psychology. Because I know. they would understand I- this more. But I'll, I'll tell you, my layman's. Take on that. I, I do think that you know most Americans have had no experience uh, with war. Right? World War II is a long ways away, and we've had a volunteer army for for a very long period of time. So most Americans have no experience with war, and so they don't understand the horror of it. They don't understand how destructive it is, or or how the how pervasive the costs are. Not not only when you're going through it, but but for generations afterwards. And and I think they think of it as a game, as, as something exciting and an adventure. And I think that's really really dangerous. Um, and um, yeah, and, and then I, I do think that if if you we have a culture that sort of um, you know not only embraces guns but gl- almost glamorizes g- guns, then then it's not a, a big leap to say, oh well, you know, wouldn't this be exciting?
0: Well, and also we have people playing around with the idea of national divorce, which I've been predicting yeah. for some time that the next thing is going to be, uh, you know, secession, that sort of thing. So uh, Yale's uh, Jacob Hacker uh, analyzed your book, and, and he said yeah. that uh, everybody in power should read it immediately. And But he breaks down – I'm going to ask you the question. What – can we do about this as opposed to just wringing our hands about it? I mean, obviously make democracy work better but but are there tangible things that can be done to at least mitigate or lower the threat of of these kinds of troubles you're describing? Charlie, are you talking
1: about us as individuals or us as a society or us as a government us as a
0: society us as individuals? You write books, I do podcasts, so I mean that's what we do right. But, yeah. but what, what, what can what can people in, in power, in yeah. Congress, in, in the White House, what can they do if they want to say, okay, um, in the time that we have now, with the power yeah. we have now, what can we do to prevent or lower the chance that this thing is going to break apart like this?
1: So I'm going to say something that we haven't talked about at all. I think probably the single biggest, easiest, most important thing that we could do right now is to regulate social media. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean regulate the content. You could put whatever content you want on social media. But what we need to do is regulate the scale by which information is being disseminated at a rapid rate, uh, online and the, the degree to which recommendation engines are, are preferencing the most incendiary information, the, the type of information that, that, um, creates fear, that, um, uh, builds a sense of, of threat, um, that, that, it increasingly divides um, society, and that and that actually gives a huge mouthpiece to extremists on on both sides. But how do you I, do
0: that? How do you do that consistent with the First Amendment?
1: So I, again, this, uh, this is not my area specialty, but the, the best information on this, um, comes from a guy named uh, Tristan or Tristan Harris. He is a former chief ethicist for Google and he left Google because he was so, Uh, disgusted with what he was seeing about the business model, where the business model was all about keeping people attached to their devices. um, And the recommendation engines were then designed to do this. And it turns out that the stuff that kept people on their devices was stuff that tended to be untrue and, and stuff that tended to foment extremism, hate, and fear. Um, and he started a nonprofit called the Center for Humane Technology. And it is a fabulous website. And on that website, he has a, a stream of podcasts. And, and I listen to every single one. And he's interviewing chief engineers at the big tech companies. And he's having them explain and really accessible interesting ways, uh, how the recommendations work and what they're doing. And, and they don't talk about, you know, uh, uh, halting free speech at all. They say the same thing. They're like, put whatever you want on, on, on Facebook. But don't allow Facebook to then create a recommendation engine that that cherry picks the worst hmm. material that's there, figures out who's susceptible it, uh, to that message, and then push more and more extreme messages towards them. Um, and that's where what I think everybody should be listening
0: to. What about cracking down on the militia groups?
1: So um, that is definitely possible. So the the previous peak in the number of militia groups in the United States was right after Timothy McFay's attack on the federal building in Oklahoma mm. City in the 1990s. Um, that was actually a very rich time for militias. Uh, many of them were on the far right, but but there were a lot of far left militias back then. And after the, the bombing, the FBI um, was really really aggressive about going after these groups, infiltrating them, you know, uh, arresting uh, the leaders, and you saw almost an immediate reversal in the number of militias, and and it really kind of plummeted until about 2008, and then the trend reversed itself when Obama was elected president, and you started to see once again a surge in the formation of these militias. This time. Um, Uh, uh, most of it, over 70% of it was on the far right. Um, And so, you you know, the FBI knows um, about these groups, it knows how to infiltrate the groups. Um, I'm sure after January 6th, again, that's why it was such an important wake up call. Um, I'm sure they've, you know, they've been quite active trying to implement many, many of the same policies.
0: You know, one of the things that really struck me from last year was the the reaction after this uh, militia group was uh, they, they made arrests with a militia group that was planning on kidnapping uh, Gretchen Whitmer, the governor yeah. of Michigan. Yeah. You would have thought that that would have been a massive wake up call, that things had really gone off the tracks. And yet you look back on it and it was scarcely a blip. And it was. I keep trying to draw up the scenarios in which people go. Okay, now it's really, really bad. But after what happened with with almost happened with Governor Whitmer and what happened on January sixth, it's kind of hard to imagine what that would be. That shock of reality that would get people to say, "Okay, we ought to be very alarmed about this."
1: So again, if you go back to that CIA manual on insurgency and you were to read um, how they identify whether a country is in this, the second stage, the incipient conflict stage, um, what they say about that is this is the stage where you have these disaffected groups. They are now forming militias and they are starting to have, they are starting to engage in Isolated attacks, and the the manual says the thing basically the thing to worry about this stage is that the government is not yet aware that this is part of a lo- a larger movement. They tend to see these attacks as the result of lone wolves and isolated and idiosyncratic and therefore they don't take it seriously yeah. and they don't yeah. connect the dots. And of course, I think that's what the Whitmer kidnapping was. Just like the McVay. Like People talked about the Timothy McVeigh and if you were to ask people about Timothy McVeigh, I bet 99% of the people you asked would say, he was a lone wolf. wolf. He was not a lone wolf. <laughs> he probably was a member of one of the biggest militias um, in Michigan. The same militia that was was uh, that participated in the plot to kidnap. Governor Whitmer, he um, his his pickup truck um, had pages from the Turner Diaries in the back seat. The Turner Diaries is considered the Bible of the far right. Um, there's videos of of people uh, who attacked the Capitol on January 6th. There's a video of a guy holding up the book, the Turner Diaries, and and telling the the cameraman, "You should read this book." So there, you know, again, there's this is part of a larger movement, and and people have really put put it together yet. And that's why I actually think January 6th was a gift to the American people, because it made it impossible to ignore or deny that there is this cancer growing in our midst.
0: The book is How Civil Wars Start and How to Stop Them. Barbara Walter, thank you so much for spending so much time with us on today's Bulwark podcast.
1: It's my pleasure. Thank you very much.
0: And thank you for listening today. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow, and we'll do this all over again.